Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a guest from Maryland's highest court, Court of Appeals, Judge John Biron. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. From the outset, I would note that Judge Biron is a graduate of Swarthmore College and the Stanford University Law School and has wended his way at some point in time from California to Maryland, apparently. And I wondered about how that came about. Well, my path to Maryland probably owes most to my wife. After we got married, we were, we were both living in Washington, D.C., but then we did a detour to Connecticut for about five years. I was an assistant U.S. attorney up there, and she worked at Yale University. But the pull of family, particularly on her side, but also a little bit on my side, brought us to Maryland in early 2006. I was able to transfer within the Justice Department, so I became an assistant U.S. attorney in Baltimore. And my wife, you know, she's a lawyer as well, and she went to work in the private sector. And so we've been here for more than 15 years and have put down our roots here and been very happy here. Well, I'm a huge Maryland fan. I moved here with my parents in 1969 and have never regretted it, despite three years in Chapel Hill. So just by way of background, what brought you into the law? Was this something that you always wanted to do? Was it something that occurred spontaneously? What, what happened to bring that about? Well, probably one of my parents or both of my parents when I was a kid said something, you know, you should be a lawyer, probably when I was debating them or, or just being annoying. But I didn't really think seriously about law until I was in college. And I had a couple of experiences close in time that perhaps pushed me on the path that I eventually that took. One was I served on a jury. This was in New Jersey where I grew up. I had just finished my freshman year of college and got called for jury duty and actually got picked and served on a criminal case. And I found it fascinating. It was a very positive experience. And I remember thinking to myself, I might enjoy doing what these lawyers did. And then the next year, probably because of that experience, the next year I got a job in the summer between my sophomore and junior years at a law firm in New York City. And it was a large law firm, very well-known firm called Skadden Arps. And they would hire probably 50 to 70 college students every summer. And I was fortunate to get one of those positions just as a, a gopher. And I got to know some of the lawyers and that young lawyers in that firm. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I think I would like to hang out with these people. These are They, they were interesting fun. They worked hard. They're very smart. And I thought I could see myself maybe doing what they did. So probably you can draw a straight line from those two experiences that I had in college to today. There is an interesting chapter in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books about the origin story of Skadden Arps that, that intrigued me. I have since known a couple people, younger people, my kids' ages, who are working at Skadden right now up in New York. And uh, seems like it's a lot of hard work, but interesting work. It is. And I went back there a few times, still as a young person. I worked there because of that summer experience. When I graduated from college, I didn't go to law school right away. I did two years as a legal assistant at Skadden's Washington office. Then I went to law school and did a federal court clerkship. And then I went back as an associate at Skadden. I didn't stay as long that last incarnation as I thought I would. But I still have a very soft spot for that firm in, in my heart because they were really my first experience in law and getting to know lawyers and trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do in law. So you ultimately gravitated to working for the United States government as a lawyer. How did that come about? 
when I was in law school, again, I had an interesting summer job. One, one summer, I worked for a criminal defense firm in Manhattan. And when I arrived, it was right in the middle of this fascinating trial. One of the partners in the firm was defending a man who had been indicted in a bid rigging scheme in federal court in Brooklyn. And I showed up and it was the middle of the trial. So I was able to go watch a lot of that trial. And the partner for whom I worked did a great job and obtained mostly a good result. It was a split verdict at the end. But I remember watching that trial and thinking to myself, you know, I love what my boss is doing, but maybe I think I, I maybe even like better being on the other side of the courtroom as a prosecutor. Sure. Uh, so that really planted the seed for me that maybe one day, I, I, if I could, I'd like to be a prosecutor. I then clerked for a judge in Sacramento, California, federal district court judge who had been the U.S. attorney in that district and told a lot of stories about his days, first as a line prosecutor and then as the presidentially appointed U.S. attorney. And that really piqued my interest. So you typically these days don't get that as a, as a job right out of law school or a clerkship. So I went back to Skadden. I stayed there for a while. And then I was able to make my way back to the federal government as a prosecutor. I stayed, did that for about 17 years. I moved in to a, different, a couple of different offices within the Justice Department. But each time I was prosecuting mostly white collar cases. And it was a wonderful time in my career. I'm very grateful that I had that. I learned a lot and felt like in my own small way, it made a difference. I did notice that you were involved in mortgage fraud. It looked like prosecutions at some point in time. Can you tell us a little bit about that or am I mistaking things? No, no, you're right. So when I got to Maryland as a federal prosecutor in early 06, that was close to the top of the real estate market. So a year or so later, as you'll recall, that's when the market downturn occurred. And what that did, in addition to wiping out a lot of people, it exposed a significant amount of fraud in the mortgage process. When home prices were rising and rising and rising and all boats were being lifted, so to speak, there wasn't really a quick or easy way to see whether or not some of these loans were being procured by fraud. But once the market tanked, unfortunately, and all the, the banks incurred these substantial losses, then if you started looking, you probably would, were going to find quite a bit of fraud in the application process and other parts of the process. So in Maryland and elsewhere around the country, federal prosecutors started to react to this problem and made it a, a probably the top priority in at least white collar enforcement around 2008 or so. And our U.S. attorney at the time, Rod Rosenstein, asked me to to spearhead that effort in Maryland. So we brought together federal, state, local stakeholders, whoever had an interest in investigating and prosecuting both criminally, civilly, administratively, anything relating to mortgage fraud, they were welcome to be part of this task force. And really they were, I think at one point we had more than 30 agencies, state, federal, local involved. So I prosecuted some of the cases myself, but more than, more than that, I was really just an administrator just trying to help facilitate everybody's work and making sure we stayed out of each other's way, but contributed resources where needed to try to have the biggest you know, impact in Maryland. You know, it's just from my experience in Maryland, there was back in the day, the old court savings and loan, and there have been a, a history of things. And it does seem like mortgage fraud, like for lack of a better term, crimes are cyclical in nature. And that, 
you know, there's when I've got my first mortgage, it was almost impossible. I almost had to extract teeth and send them in to prove who I was and that sort of thing. And then it seems like the requirements become less onerous and things loosen up and then there's problems again and that sort of thing. Is there anything lasting that can be done to ensure that we don't need you back in the Justice Department someday to, to cure this again in Maryland? Well, it won't be me who's going back to do it. But unfortunately, there's always going to be some level of fraud. Certainly prosecutors and the law enforcement agencies try to deter it. But if the incentives are there, there will always be some amount of it. I think that one hopes that the lending institutions learn some important lessons from the last time around. You know, as you pointed out, it used to be much harder relative to 2008, much harder to get a mortgage or really most kinds of loans. And that really got loosened up to the point where probably it was creating a lot of opportunities for fraud. So we'll see. I mean, we sometimes hear people today talking about how we're in a, another bubble. And I hope for all of our sakes, it does. if we are, that it doesn't burst. And if it does, if there is a bubble and it bursts, we'll see if we kind of have a repeat of 2008 or whether there's less to go after. I think there is an intermittent public perception, particularly during the era that you describe, that lower fruit on the tree gets prosecuted and that the big bankers from, you know, the Bank of America or, you know, any of those institutions, J.P. Morgan, don't ultimately result in criminal prosecutions. And I wondered, A, whether you think that's accurate, and B, whether you think there is something to kind of bring it home to the public that there are more protections and that the people higher up who are making enormous amounts of money are ultimately held accountable on these things. I was certainly in the Justice Department were sensitive at that time to some of this criticism that we were going after low-hanging fruit and just you know, mortgage brokers or borrowers. And I can tell you, certainly, if there was an opportunity to expose and prosecute fraud at the highest levels of a bank, there was plenty of desire to do that. As I'm sure you know, a lot of these fraud offenses are specific intent offenses. And it's so the more removed you are from a, a particular transaction, the harder, not impossible, but the harder it gets to prove the necessary intent for a criminal prosecution. Now, there were plenty of civil and administrative enforcement actions that didn't result in jail time, but you know, had other consequences for people in the industry, perhaps not as satisfying for the public as a criminal prosecution would have been. But one hopes at least that everybody in the industry understood that we were looking and that if you could find an offense to prosecute, that no one was going to be immune from it. You know, I, I think that criminal laws appropriately are written to require proof of specific intent, and that to some extent will shield some of the more removed actors from prosecution. I don't think we would want to do it the other way, right? Because we require intent before we're going to call someone a, a, a criminal. And I think the public would not like it, frankly, if we ultimately changed that. There are some strict liability criminal offenses, but they're very rare. So that results in a tension in a moment like that during the 2008 market downturn where, where people see the consequences of requiring specific intent. I hadn't intended this segue, but it makes a lot of sense to segue into the Chavis versus Blybaum case. And I don't want to 
get too inside baseball for our audience, understanding them to basically be Howard County Community College students and faculty and employees and, and stuff. But that decision came out, a six to one decision written by you that had some interesting turns in the road, I guess, relative to, to history. And I wondered if you might talk about that a little bit. Sure. So this was a case that we decided at the end of our last term, and it involves the Maryland Consumer Debt Collection Act, which provides remedies to consumers for various types of wrongful conduct by debt collectors. And the one, the issue in that case was how do we deal with the assertion of a right by a debt collector? In this case, it had, it had to do with the proper rate of post-judgment interest. So in other words, in a, you know, if, if I'm a debt collector and a consumer breaches their contract to pay rent and I'm able to get a judgment against them for unpaid rent, what's the amount of interest post-judgment that I'm entitled to? And the law was unsettled on that point at the time a couple of these debt collectors asserted a right to collect 10% interest. Later on, it was determined in, a, in another case that our court decided that the correct rate was 6%. So there were a couple of uh, class actions filed against uh, these debt collectors saying, you asserted this right that didn't exist, and that provides a remedy for us to, to go after you now. And the debt collectors said, well, wait a minute, when we engaged in this activity, we didn't know what the answer was going to be. And so we turned out to be wrong, but you shouldn't be able to go after us when we assert a right that we didn't know didn't exist because there wasn't settled law. Sure. And what we decided in the case was the standard is actual knowledge or recklessness. And recklessness is a question of fact. And so what we, we sent the case back, the debt collectors had prevailed in the courts below, and we sent the case back to the trial courts, two different cases. And we said, you're going to need to go through discovery to find out whether there's a genuine dispute of fact as to whether the debt collectors were reckless. And so it remains to be seen. It'll be interesting to, to see how those cases progress through the summary judgment phase and to see whether there, there might be trials that have to do with the state of mind of the collectors and whether they asserted this right recklessly or not. One would think that this might give them an incentive to work things out or compromise things in a manner that didn't formally exist. Well, we'll see. Time will tell. It has to be sort of intriguing because this isn't really, I think, the public perception, but an awful lot of cases come up through the court system ultimately reach the highest court in Maryland, the Court of Appeals, what is in many states a Supreme Court. And I'll mention that in a minute too. But And then the Court of Appeals makes a decision and it kind of takes the, goes down the steps back to the original trial court where the law is interpreted by Maryland's highest court, you know, comes to rest against the factual scenario. And I wonder, does one or does the court itself follow the subsequent exploits of the cases? You know, I mean, every now and then I'm, I, think about a case. I've been on the court for almost two years. And so now I've, I've had some time for some of the cases that I worked on to have gone back to the courts. And every now and then I'll think about a case and I'll say to myself, I wonder what happened to that one. And so I'll, if I have a couple minutes free, I might, I might look. But every now and then they come back to us again, right? They, they go right. back to the lower court and some new issue emerges. And we, and we sometimes see those cases again. That, that's relatively rare, but we do have some 
repeat customers, so to speak. And then at that point, of course, we'll know what happened in the interim. But like anybody else, I have curiosity about what happens to the cases after the leave us, but sometimes I'm a little too busy to follow it closely. So we've kind of discussed the process of your job with some others in the same role, but I'd like to just review for our audience the unique sort of stature that you have in the process, that these cases don't just come out of a trial and immediately go to you. Generally speaking, they are first heard by another appellate court in Maryland, the Court of Special Appeals. And then when a decision is made there, then there's an opportunity for an aggrieved litigant to seek the opportunity to appear before you and argue their case through this posh process called certiorari. And, and I just wondered how much the petitions for writ of certiorari ultimately influence the decision that gets made in the case, assuming that it gets to the Court of Appeals. The petition itself is very important in terms of getting a petitioner's foot in the door. And I was just actually working on one right before we got on this meeting. It's a significant part of of what we do every month. We get several stacks of these petitions. And so the petitions are very important in terms of convincing us that we should use our discretion to to hear that particular case. We only accept a relatively small percentage of all the petitions filed for review. So the petition itself is a very important document to explain what it is about this case that makes it worthy of discretionary review. And we require not just that there was an alleged error, but that the case have significance beyond the parties, that there has to be something that, that makes it in the public's interest for us to review that case. So when we get a well-written petition, we'll go right to that, in my opinion. It will lead with that and say why it's important, why this case, even though, yes, it affects these two parties, what is there about this case that transcends the parties and and is important for us to reach it? Maybe it's a case about interpretation of a brand new statute, so we've never had a chance to review it before. Maybe there is just some uncertainty in the way the the statute is being interpreted by lower courts. Maybe there's a constitutional problem. Maybe a Supreme Court case was recently decided that calls into question how we've been interpreting. So the petitions are important to getting us to focus on the case. Once it's here, we then get full briefing. And by the way, I should say, the winning party in the Court of Special Appeals gets to write an answer to the cert petition explaining why we shouldn't grant review. And we read those closely also. And they typically will say, well, actually, there's nothing that interesting about this case. There's nothing unique about it. It just requires an application of settled law. But assuming we agree with the petitioner that the case is worthy of review, then we get full briefing by both sides. And I typically, it's rare for me to go back and read the petition again. I typically just stick with the briefs. And usually several months have passed. I may not even remember what was in the petition, <laughs> to, to be honest about it, but the briefs are usually longer. There's more time and page space for the parties to really develop their arguments. And so it's really the briefs that at that stage are the most important thing, along with the oral arguments. So that's one of the questions I end up asking people a lot. And I was arguing a case before the Fourth Circuit year before last, I guess. And 
one of the things Fourth Circuit does, which I think is really cool, is they go to the area law schools and have arguments periodically. So our argument was at West Virginia Law School, and they asked for questions afterwards. And of course, the whole student bodies, and they all have trepidation about asking federal judges a question. So I've just argued it. So I asked them, and I said, how often does oral argument sway you? You know, you go into this, you've read the briefs, you probably have some mindset about who you think probably should prevail, notwithstanding efforts to be neutral about it all. And how often does oral argument change the outcome? And what is it about those oral arguments, if you've thought about it, that makes them so effective? Well, I love oral argument. I loved giving arguments when I was an advocate, and I, I really enjoy them on the other side of the courtroom now. And so I try to go into each argument with an open mind. You're right, of course, I've read the briefs. Oftentimes, I have a pretty strong view of how I think I'm going to vote on the case. But then there are other cases where it seems to me it's a very close case, and I'm just not sure. And I'm, I'm very, in those cases, especially persuadable in the oral argument. And oftentimes, what I think the, the really good oral arguments don't rehash the briefs because we've read them. We're all prepared. I think the best oral arguments, they will reread their briefs and their opponents' briefs and think about what do I think the judges are going to be struggling with in this case? What does this case really turn on? How can I help this judge understand that my position is the one that should prevail? And so I find that the best advocates will do their best to anticipate what are these judges probably or what might they be struggling with and just hit that point in their in close to the opening of their argument. And those are some of the best arguments because we really start focusing on what's important in the case, as opposed to, I mean, not to say that the briefs are, that, I mean, there's plenty of, of good stuff in these briefs, but, but a lot of times in these close cases, we have to go beyond the briefs and think about the implications of this case. If we, if we decide the case the way the petitioner wants, what's that going to mean in the next case? You know, where does the rubber meet the road, so to speak, in this particular case? So in those arguments, I really enjoy them because it feels, yes, the, the lawyers have their clients that are doing their best to win the cases. But at that point, it also feels to me like we're all in this together trying to get to the right answer. And of course, we know that one lawyer or a set of lawyers won't love the answer, but I really appreciate it at the end of an argument where I feel like both sets of lawyers have done their best to try to help us answer the questions that we're struggling with. And I hope the advocates enjoy those arguments as much as we on the court do, because they're very helpful to us. And they're also just, uh, they're fun. I mean, you really, that, that intellectual back and forth and engagement in our court when we're trying to figure out what the law is or what it should be in Maryland, that makes, you know, makes my job a great one and, and one that I'm just enjoying immensely. As a, an advocate, I guess the question is, I've argued cases in a bunch of different courts, and sometimes I get up there and I'm immediately pummeled by things that I can't really answer all that effectively. And other times there is this kind of friendly silence about things. And it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to prevail or lose in either thing. Are there any kind of tips you would suggest for advocates going forward for divining when your mind is kind of hanging in equipoise or where things are? And because I don't want to waste your time. You don't have that much time to argue relative to the brief. And I just wondered if you had any suggestions for, and maybe you can't, but interpreting where the court is at. It's hard. I mean, it, it's sometimes hard to know. And, and especially in cases where, for whatever reason, we're not asking a lot of questions. I think it's hard for the advocates to, to read those tea leaves. I think that if I'm 
the respondent, meaning I go second. The petitioner argues first and the respondent argues second. It's sometimes somewhat easier because you've watched the court asking questions of your opponent. And if the majority of the judges have been really peppering your opponent with a lot of questions and at least seeming to telegraph some skepticism of the petitioner's position, and then you get up there and it's radio silence, it's crickets, you're not getting any questions. When I was the appellate chief at the U.S. Attorney's Office and we were usually you know, the appellee in the cases, that, that scenario happened with some frequency for us. And what I would do to our, with our younger attorneys when we would moot them or would give them advice is we would say, in that case, you may want to just wrap up pretty soon and just say, you know, unless the court has further questions, I think I'll submit. And of course, if the judges do have questions at that point, they will ask them. But I always was of the view in a situation like that where you're just not getting any questions, but your opponent was asked a lot of hard questions, that the more you talk, the more you invite the opportunity to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory, and sometimes better just to stop. I am consoled by that explanation because with the years, that's what I've learned, that, you know, you're so brimming, you know, it's an anxiety-provoking thing to some degree, and you've practiced and you've thought and you've got all these things you want to say, and sometimes they're singularly unnecessary, and just shutting up kind of makes things better for everybody. Sometimes. Of course, it is hard. It's hard, and it's a judgment call, and there's no right way to do it or wrong way to do it. But experience has shown me that oftentimes you can get pretty good clue if you're winning <laughs> that it's probably going well for you. One final area, and just touch on it peripherally, is that it seems that the members of the United States Supreme Court these days are kind of having to go around and put in public appearances to say we're not political. And I've never really, and maybe I'm not running in the right circles, I've never had the perception that Maryland's appellate courts were perceived as being politicized. And I mean, I understand the bigger issues that face the Supreme Court, and I'm kind of sympathetic with them because, you know, no, no matter whether they're conservative or liberal or however you want to characterize them, I do think they try and be fair-minded about what they do. And I just wondered if you had any suggestions for how to help the public understand this isn't a political undertaking, this is a legal and intellectual undertaking that's so important. Well, I can certainly, I can speak to it for our court. And before I got on this court, I certainly agreed with your perception. I never thought of, of Maryland's appellate courts as particularly politicized. And now having been on the court for almost a couple of years, I think that's correct. You know, if you look at, at the decisions in, from our court, there aren't voting blocks. I might dissent in a case and two of, two of my fellow judges might agree with me. And then in the next case heard the same day, we may have another four to three decision and the split will be totally different. So there's nothing, I mean, what I, what I draw from that is on our court, at least, we are attempting to decide each case on its own merits. And, and sometimes that results in a unanimous decision. Sometimes you know, these are hard cases and reasonable minds can differ. So, uh, you know, on the Supreme Court, some if you look statistically, they're probably, uh, they're probably more defined voting blocks. But I will say my perception of, of the Supreme Court is that, again, they're stuck with some very hard cases. And I would hope people would, as a judge now, I would hope people would give judges the benefit of the doubt and understand that these are hard cases. They A lot of these cases could probably go either way. And that, you know, when you look at any appellate court, we hope that 
whether it's the president or a governor, that they're putting people on who are committed to looking at each case on its merits and just trying hard to reach the best decision, understanding that we're all imperfect beings and that, again, reasonable minds can differ. But all I can say is I'm glad that at least in Maryland, I think perception and reality are both correct that we just don't, at least up till now, we just haven't had that as an issue. That's got to be a better environment to work in also. Well, we have a very collegial court. I feel very fortunate that uh, we have seven judges on our court. And again, we don't agree on every case, but when we have our conferences after each oral argument, and then again, when we're voting on the opinions after they've been circulated, it's always a respectful discussion. Certainly, we can be pointed in our criticism of other people's positions, but it's never a personal thing. It's never ad hominem. And actually, you know, we take our jobs very seriously, but we also have quite a bit of laughter in our conferences. You know, there's, we, we like each other as people. And that's one of the things that makes this job so much fun, because if you had toxic personalities in any small organization, it would, it would probably make it less fun. But I, I really enjoy the people on our court. And I just hope that, you know, we're getting some new members uh, over the next year or so. And I hope that whoever joins our court will be as much fun to work with as, as our current batch. I regret to say that our time is up, but I'd very much like to thank you for your appearance today. It has been enlightening, and I hope you encourage your other colleagues to join me at some point in time. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And certainly I would, I would tell any other judge who uh, gets invited that it's fun and they should do it. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 